Well, guys, as we get started today, uh, I, I, I want to um, ask you to think of some of the most exciting moments you've ever had in your life. Think of those moments that just really make your heart pound when you can think of them. Um, man, it could be when you were, you were going to ask your wife to marry you, your heart had probably never beaten faster than that moment. Uh, ladies, it could have been when your husband, you know, he's about to go down on one knee and say, I want to marry you, or you find out you're pregnant for the first time. It could be you're on this crazy vacation and you take this awesome zip line like hundreds of feet and you're just enjoying that experience. It could be you met a random celebrity on an airplane and that just, that has been one of the most exciting things. You got to meet your dream star, so to speak. It could be uh, you got your first job, your first career path, and, and you are so pumped at what God is doing by having the trajectory laid out for you. Could be that you had debt, massive amount of debt, and somebody paid it off. Holy cow, the freedom you feel, right? Thousands of dollars in debt, gone. And that could be one of those most exciting moments. Regardless of the situation, there are moments in our lives that are incredibly exciting that move us to a place of remembrance. Um, the Bible is a story that is chock full of excitement. It is, uh, I mean, from cover to cover, there is exciting happenings and storylines and relationships, and there's just so much. No story can touch the Bible. And today, we're going to consider a section of Scripture that is highly, highly exciting. It's a genealogy. Yep. We're hitting genealogy today, people. This is going to be exciting. And to make it even more exciting, we're talking church budget later. Can I get an amen? All right. Wow, I like this. Everybody's excited about this. Here's the deal. That is not exciting at all, okay? Uh, genealogies are not exciting, and church budgets are not exciting, but they're both incredibly important. And so as we take a look at the scriptures today, I want to remind you that as you, we read over these names, and I, I have practiced the names so that I will publicly say them properly, so... At the end, if you'd like to clap for me, I would not be against that, because that was a lot of work to remember all these names. Um, but before we get there, I want to take you to the big picture outline, Gospel of Luke. Today, so exciting, we finished the first section of the Gospel of Luke. We've been in it for, gosh, probably 11, 12 weeks now, and we are finishing the first section today, the coming Messiah section, and this section talked all about the expectations of God's kingdom and what it's going to be for him to be the Messiah and this section in particular is really going to anchor Jesus to the Old Testament as we look through all of these names. Okay, grab your Bibles, buckle up your seatbelts, and I hope I get these names right. Here we go. Verse 23 of chapter 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mephath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel. I totally want to give up right now. This is horrible. The son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, 
the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amindab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Shurug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphax. I have no idea what that is. Sorry about that. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Woo! All right. Thank you. Thank you. That was horrible for me. Hope it was great for you. But here's the deal. We look at this text, and if you're reading that, that is the best devotional you've ever had, right? That and Leviticus, those are the ones you just go to to have the Lord speak to you. But we live in a world where lineage isn't a big deal. It's not a big deal for us. Unless you're like an Ancestry.com like fan, this is, you're, you're not excited about this passage. Um, but from this culture and time, who you are is determined by who you come from. If you're a Jew, you have a pure bloodline that leads you to a place kind of like a patriarch. So let's think of last week, right? You had people coming to John the Baptist who said they were sons of Abraham. And John the Baptist said, God can actually make stones the son of Abraham. Just because you have a name, it doesn't mean anything. And yet, names in this culture matter. There's a pure bloodline that these people thought they had when they came to see John the Baptist. They said, hey, John, what do you have to offer me? I'm, the, I'm a son of Abraham. Why does this matter, what you have to offer me? You know, this lineage-dominated culture meant that if you had the right lineage, you were a part or had membership in the right type of community. And if you don't, you're not. But as we've seen, Luke is a very methodical author. He is very purposeful. He is a doctor. So brother cares about details and structure, and he put this thing together in a very purposeful way. And he, he makes this huge list of names that I'm so glad that I'm done reading. And they're all, the, they're son of Abraham. And then there's other guys in there like David and Isaac and Jacob and Adam. And he essentially calls himself the son of God. But there's something unique that is brought to the table in this text in particular. Luke invites his readers to not just see the perceived reality, but to see the true reality of who Jesus is. If we can put back on the screen the very first verse, verse 23. It says this about Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, and here's the key section in parentheses, as was supposed of Joseph. So, here's the reality. Has there ever been a time in your life where you had the wrong perception based upon wrong assumptions? Has anybody else been there? Or is that just me? Great. Fantastic. Here's how it worked for me. I was a worship pastor in Southern California for a long time, and let's just call this guy Chad, okay? So Chad, first off, that's actually his real name, but there's always a Chad in your life, FYI. Chad's like the guy who's trying to steal your girlfriend. That's the Chad, you know? That's the, that's the name Chad. There's actually, yeah, never mind. That's a story for later. But there is, uh, so Chad. Chad comes in, and he's a drummer, and my buddy Jeremy, he's the bass player, and when you're a worship pastor, you're always trying to find somebody on your team just to grab. Um, do you know any musicians? Do you know who's available? And this guy walks in the room. Um, so we're in this office setting, and he's, in, he's sitting down on the Roland electric drum kit. You guys have seen those electric drum kits? 
Um, we had to have one because we're in an office building. We can't be very loud. He sits down and he starts tinkering. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And, and for me, I'm, I'm trying to read this guy from the moment he walks in. And so, you know, for me, I open my big mouth. You know, I'm a worship pastor. I'm 23, which means I think I have everything in life nailed. Um, and so I just start talking like I have this whole gig down. So I ask him the typical worship leader questions. So, hey, Chad, have you ever played in a worship team before? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've definitely done that a couple times. And I asked, how, how long have you been playing drums for? Um, no joke, I literally had a guy show up to play bass who doesn't know how to read music. So these why, this is why I ask these questions, because you ask to find out the craziest things. But how long have you been playing drums for? He says, a few years. And um, the questions go on and on. Chad answers incredibly humbly and kindly. And then Chad sits down to play. Have you guys ever seen the documentary by John Mayer when he did uh, his live show in Los Angeles? Has anybody ever seen that or okay i'm the only john mayer fan in the room fantastic cool i'm by myself again thank you jeremy i appreciate that but so john mayer he's talking about when he sits down with another musician a session artist and who who is actually incredible he sits down and he literally says this when i'm when i'm sitting across and playing from a guy who's so much better than me my only response is to giggle it's my only response and that was my response when Chad decided to sit down on a drum kit and blow me away. You guys familiar with the song Rosanna, the old school song Rosanna, the drum beat in there? That's crazy. I mean, this guy <laughs> comes to find out he's a studio pro. He's played with Frank Grabs, one of the, the biggest R&B artists of all time. You know that song, Get Up, Get On Up. Okay, he played drums on that track, FYI. So I'm just sitting there and I'm in awe <laughs> of... Chad's playing ability. He's an incredible, incredible player, and I completely had the wrong perception of him. I just thought he was some guy who was trying to tinker and figure out how this drum kit works, trying to figure out what drum is which drum, but, I mean, he's dialing in how to play a drum kit. And right before my eyes, I had no idea. This is exactly what Luke is doing when it comes to talking about Jesus. Like the apostle, Peter, for me, I stuck my foot in my mouth pretty quick when I met Chad. For many people looking at Jesus, they completely missed the real reality of who he was and just thought he was Joseph's son. He's just Joseph's son. So what's the big deal? He's the son of a carpenter. But as was supposed, we find out that the more and more you read on, that Jesus is actually, the true reality is that he's actually the son of God. His lineage is better than any other lineage, and in fact, Here's why Jesus' genealogy matters. Because God has covenants with his people that he has kept for thousands upon thousands of years. And if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, and if he didn't come from the background from which he said he would have came from, then all of those covenants would be null and void. All of those covenants would be null and void. And this is the beauty, is that as you look through the text of Scripture in this section, you see all of these people. You see them all. You see all of the covenants. You see all of what God is doing. And so let's look at some of these names. You have King David. You know, he's the man after God's heart. You know, he's the one who slayed Goliath. He's the one who led the nation of Israel for years, time and time again. And then his son Solomon set up this reign in Israel called the Golden Age of Israel. Like this is, this is like Cribs TV to the max, like the best most rich, I mean, streets of gold, like, had nothing. This was an amazing time in Israel's history. There was so much that was going on. He's the psalmist who's responsible for so much of the book of Psalms. 
So God pursued David for this covenant relationship. And this covenant that, that God set up with David was that there's going to be a king on the throne. There's going to be a king that's going to be on the throne for the rest of eternity. But David, he's not going to be you, but he's going to come from your line. Then you have Abraham. Abraham, the first patriarch of the people of Israel. See, Abraham didn't have a Jewish background. Oftentimes we can look at these people in these stories and think that they're heroes. But in reality, they are just regular run-of-the-mill Joes like you and me. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham did not worship Yahweh. Abraham lived amongst the Ur of the Chaldeans where they had pagan worship all the time. And what does God do? God decides to choose a pagan to love. God decides to start this covenant relationship with Abraham and calls him to himself. And he says this, Abraham, you're going to develop a great nation. You're going to create this great nation that through whom all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. And who knew? Then you have Noah, right? Noah is a very famous name in that genealogy. Noah was the only righteous man who, quote-unquote, lived at that time when everybody else was pursuing evil and always evil continually. If you were here in the summer series, we talked about Noah. We talked about uh, the book of Genesis, and we talked about how evil it was during Noah's time. And so God told him to build an ark uh, because God was going to flood the world and start fresh. There was just too much evil that was going on. But then we see God pursuing Noah in covenant relationship after the flood where God told Noah that he would never, ever wipe out people again. He's going to start fresh and he's going to be true to that. And then you have Adam, right? The firstborn, the, the, the first created man, the keeper of the garden, the most intimate relationship you can have with God, Adam had. God created Adam and God gave Adam this covenant called the creational mandate where he was supposed to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and the part that everybody else misses is that he's supposed to subdue the earth. He's supposed to rule and reign like his God. He's supposed to be made in the image and likeness of God where he is going to rule and reign in this world. And there was that creational mandate that Adam had. So now let's go back to Luke, right? If you are reading this and if you're a Jew and all of a sudden you see the true reality of who Jesus is, there is a stock line full of lineage here. There is so much that's here. But this is the reality. Those men aren't heroes. All of them have failed. And God is faithful to choose to be in a relationship with them. And this is precisely why Jesus had to have the lineage that he had. You see, Adam was selfish. He chose to exalt himself as God rather than live in the relationship that he had with God. Noah was a drunk. And where he got hammered and his daughters took advantage of him just to keep the family line going. Abraham was a liar. He was afraid to be married to a beautiful woman like Sarah. So when he was asked, is this, is this your wife? He goes, no, 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 no. And then he puts her in jeopardy to save his own skin. David was an adulterer and a murderer who used his kingly power to sleep with Bathsheba and then impregnate her and then set up a scenario to where uh, her husband had to be the father and then when that didn't work out, ended up killing him. The beautiful thing about covenant is that it's about God's faithfulness to us, not about our faithfulness to him. And in order for God, God's promises to be true, somebody has to come in and fulfill where people have failed. And what that was, this is that person. Jesus is that person. So Luke gives us two genealogies in this text. The perceived one where if you're in the time, 
you just think Jesus is the son of Joseph. But now that you're out of time and reading this, those who would read this would see that the true reality is that Jesus is the son of God. And what's amazing is that oftentimes those heroes in scripture that we see as heroes, Jesus tops them all and actually shows himself to be the hero of the story. Jesus is the better Adam. For where Adam failed to uh, enjoy his relationship with God and to live out that creational mandate to rule and reign over this world, Jesus is going to come and be the one who rules and reigns and teaches us how to rule and reign in eternity. So he's the better Adam. Jesus is the better Noah. Noah had only the opportunity to save himself from the flood, his family, and the animals. But yet, God uses Jesus to save all of humanity. That those who would come to Christ in repentance for forgiveness of sins, Jesus would save them. So Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus is the better Abraham. Abraham was given that gospel that he is going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. But he said it's going to be somebody in his line who's going to be the one who's the source of that blessing. And Jesus Christ is the better Adam or is the better Abraham because he's the source of that blessing. And Jesus is also the better David. For David ruled for only a brief period of time in human history, and yet Jesus is going to be the better David who rules for all eternity. He's the covenant of all scripture. He fulfills everything. And here's what this means for you and I. God has not forgotten his promises to us. Amen? He has not forgotten us. He has not left us behind. The beauty of this genealogy is that we get to see the faithfulness of God again and again and again. And here's what's crazy. God's faithful in the midst of no-name people. God's not just faithful in the midst of Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, the names we remember. He's faithful for our packs. Who's our packs? I have no idea, but God's faithful. And here's the beautiful thing. Most of you and most of, most of me, that's a horrible thing. I can't believe you even said that. Most of you and most of me, that makes no sense. All of us, that's what I was trying to say. All of us are most likely going to be no names. We're at the end of history. Nobody's going to look back and go, yay, look what Steve Pyfram did, or yay, look what Bill Lewis did, or yay, look what Dan Gibson did, yay. But hopefully they look back and go, look at what Jesus has done through no-name people like us. That's the beautiful gift that we have today. That's what Colossae Sherwood is. We are a community of no-names where hopefully God will continue to be faithful to his promise. And this is the beauty of this genealogy, is that as we look at this, we see name after name after name that we don't know. But God is continually faithful in the midst of that. So when you do read the genealogies of Scripture in your time with God, be encouraged. Don't skip over them. Spend time in them because you'll see the faithfulness of God. You'll see how good He is towards His covenants and you'll see how He's even faithful for us today. So for those of you who are lacking hope today, may this remind you of the reality that God is faithful to you. You may not see it. You may not know about it. But behind the scenes, God is constantly at work being faithful to you and me and to our church family. And that leads us into our budget, the second most exciting thing on our tap today, okay? The church budget, praise the Lord. Every year, Colossae 
is going to go over a budget like this because we are financially transparent as an organization. You can ask any question about how much money is spent here or there, and I can get you a report within a day. Too many churches are about money. Too many churches deep down won't talk about money. Here's the deal. As long as I lead this church, money is an open conversation. All right? It's an open conversation. Because for us, if we are to be those who are blessed to be a blessing, one of the ways that we are blessed to be a blessing is not only through our time, not only through our talents, but also through our treasure, through what we have. Martin Luther has said it famously this way. There's three conversions to a man. The mind, the heart, and the wallet. And my hope today is that as we talk through this budget stuff, that for those of you who may be clinging tightly to the wallet in your life, I want you to open up your hands today and be generous the way that God has been generous to you. The point of the church is that all of us get to be generous in this. And so we get to look at this budget now. So here's, here's where we were in 2016. So total giving for last year, $143,000. Look around. There's like 40 people in here. Are you kidding me? That's an incredibly generous amount of people. That's fantastic. Okay, and here's our spending from last year. Total spending, $135,911. And then the total kind of remaining is we had $7,000 left over. We're in the black for the first year as a church plant. That's insane. That's insane. Most of us don't even know how to balance a budget, okay? And at the same exact time, we look, oh, God's balanced our budget pretty well this year. This is a big deal. So let me kind of go over kind of what this breaks down includes. So first, we're in the black 7,000 this year, which is a total testament to God's faithfulness. And in the midst of it is kind of my story of kind of what's happened. So Many of you know, uh, but many of you don't know, so I'll kind of share the story. For us, uh, my wife Nadia and I moved up here last year in January to help plant Colossae Sherwood. Um, our former lead pastor, Bucky Buckstabber, um, was here. I was his church planting intern, came in and just decided to want to learn how to church plant. And so we moved up here, did everything, and uh, really enjoyed our time. Halfway through the year, Bucky's like, hey man, where do you want to plant? And Nadia and I are talking, and we said, you know, maybe urban, maybe east side Portland, or maybe back to Los Angeles somewhere. And he goes, what about Sherwood? And I go, wait a minute, that's your job. No joke, that's your job. And in the midst of all of it, I had no idea that in September of this year that God was going to entrust me to the leadership of this church. Had no idea. So in September, we made the official handoff between Bucky and I. And so uh, we just moved into Sherwood yesterday. So... We are here. You can't get rid of me. You're welcome. It's going to be great. Uh, and I can really attest. I can really attest to the fact that Ben has hundreds of moving blankets because he did that yesterday. But how it relates to the finances is this: last year I had to raise thirty-one thousand dollars for us to be up here. So this number is padded just a bit by that thirty-one thousand. So. That's just a part of this year. One of the reasons why we're in the black is because I had to raise a portion of my salary for last year. Um, the third reason for this is that last year there was actually two pastor salaries. You had Bucky, who was part-time at $36,000 a year, and then you had myself from the support that I raised for last year. But after we cross all the T's and dot all the I's, we're still 7,000 in the black, which is an absolute gift. So we're incredibly thankful. I'm praising God for it because it's a big, big deal. So um, here's where we're going in 2017, though. 
So 2017, here's, uh, these are the, the, the budget for next year. The projected offerings is 132000 So technically, it's about $11,000 a month. Here's how that is going to break down. I'm averaging about $9,000 each month to come from the generosity of our people. That as we give, that that would be the number that we progressively hit. If we grow, that number can totally grow, and that number could totally increase, which is fantastic. But from what I've learned from budgeting over the years and screwing up in my own finances is that if you keep things low, your budget low and your expenses high, you're going to probably be in a very safe game. So for this year, that's what I'm doing, keeping it about 9000 per month there. And myself, I am going back to my supporters and asking them to continually support Colossae Sherwood this year for $40,000, just as extra expenditures. Because here's some of the fixed costs that come with that. So the projected offerings, these are the projected expenditures for next year. You'll see that the expenditures are more than the budget. And if you're a budget guy, you're like, wait a minute, Pyfram, that doesn't work. Here's the beauty of planting a church in a family. We are, Colossae, a family of congregations. Colossae Tigard was the first church planted. Colossae Hillsboro was the second church planted. Colossae Sherwood was the third church planted. So here's how the expenditures are going to be broken down specifically. So first, here's my salary. Next year, I will be making $57,500. I have no problem sharing with you my salary. I have no problem sharing with you my budget. Because the reality is, too many pastors are in it for the money. And Nadia and I have always said that we're going to make decisions based upon the gospel, not based upon money. And so this is where we're at. If you have any questions about that, please feel free to come up and talk to me. And then kind of some other stuff is right now the regal lease. The regal lease is 48004 next year. So those are some of the big fixed costs for that. And the rest of that is going to include coffee, donuts, community leader development, you know, children's snacks, crafts, you know, funds for musical gear, like when Marcus breaks my guitar. It's going to be great. That's actually already happened, so that's why we have to have some funds in there. But So there's roughly $15,000 of a gap, and this is where that money is going to come from. It's either going to come from one of three places. The first is me raising support. That's why I'm trying to raise $40,000 for next year, is to get us into the block again so that we wouldn't be in deficit in any way, shape, or form. Second, it would be from Colossae Tigard. Colossae Tigard has committed to that $15,000 gap to make sure that we don't go in the red next year, to make sure that we are in the black. So they've covered us there, which is great. But the third one, and this is the one that I hope for, is that us as a community makes up that $15,000 gap. Here's the deal. God is the God of economy. There is no lack to what God can do through faithful people giving of what they feel God has led them to give. And so that's the goal for next year. And so, I mean, we have, we have everything that we need to operate for next year as a church. But here's what our budget does not cover, which is why that $15,000, wherever it can come from, is going to be great. Um, for us, we can kind of be the body to the body. We can take care of one another, serve one another, provide a gathering space, provide community groups, and all of the stuff that comes with running a church weekly. We have all that stuff. But part of who we are as Colossae is that we are not only body to the body, but we want to be body to the world. We want to be generous people. So for us, we want to have extra funds so that when we see something going on in the city of Sherwood, we can say, hey, how can we get behind that to demonstrate that the church is not going to take from your community, but give to the community? And then second, I'd love for us to get into a permanent spot this year. 
in Sherwood. I'd love for us to be in a place where we could not be in the Regal. Love the comfy chairs, enjoy them while we're here, but we're not going to be here forever because we need to be in a spot. Specifically for church planning in Sherwood, Sherwood's a unique ballgame. Sherwood is a city that has this facade of perfection. And for some, for some weird reason, as I've talked to other church planters in the city, there have been six to seven church plants that have failed over the last five years. They were never able to get into a building. They were never able to get into a space. And for many people in Sherwood, one of the hangups is, is this just going to be a startup thing? Or is this going to be something that's going to last, have some permanency to it? So for us, if we can get into a building in 2017, somewhere, shape, or form, whether we own it or whether we rent it, that would be fantastic. And a way for us to actually church plant to this community, to reach them where they are, where they are at. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call all of my supporters, which I've already started to. We went back to California uh, you know, a couple weeks ago to have a supporters gathering to ask people for $40,000. So here's the deal. I have skin in the game with you. I want this thing to get off the ground. I want God to, to, to really grow this church so that we can have some funds to be a blessing to our community and get us into a spot next year. And here's what I'm asking you to do as your pastor. I'm asking you to be insanely generous this year. Here's the deal. I can't ask you to be generous because you guys have already been generous. I'm asking you to be insanely generous. Sherwood also needs to hear this too. Sherwood is a, a community that is wealthy, the second wealthiest county in all of Portland metro. So what would it look like for Christians to not worship money? What would it look like for Christians to see their money as a tool for the expansion of God's kingdom and not as for a raise in a standard of living? What would that look like? I would love for us to be that seedbed where we can talk about that type of conversation. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul put it this way to the church in Corinth who did not have a lot of money. He said this, Be generous because God has been generous to you. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because when God leads you to give, it's never him twist-arming you. It's always him by his spirit leading you to walk into the faithfulness that he has for you. And so that's my encouragement to us this year as we take a look at this budget. 2017 is going to be a great year. If we can receive encouragement from the genealogy is that God has been faithful. So 2017 is going to be a year of God being faithful to us. And the beautiful part is that we have a part to play. So Marcus is going to come up. We're going to sing a little bit. We have um, the tables where if this is your church and you feel the Spirit prompting to give, that's our business model. There's no pitch. There's no nothing. There's boxes up here if you want to give. And God's been incredibly faithful to do that. And we're going to have the bread and the cup. And this is the time when we get to remember the beautiful broken body and blood of our Lord. Where as we see the genealogy, the faithfulness of God again and again, we can come to the table with that same amount of faithfulness, that this broken in body and blood that has been faithful for all generations past is going to be faithful to generations future. Amen? God is good, and let's pray together.